Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 120, where we will be discussing chapters four and five of Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters six and seven of Gardens of the Moon, so jot that down. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that for the foreseeable future, we'll probably be covering about two chapters at a time. Yes, that seems like a pretty good speed for us. At this point, we could audible, but for now, that's that's what we're going to go with. Would you like to tell him our spoiler policy? Yes, our spoiler policy is that Chad has not read this book. Nope. I have. So we will not be spoiling anything for him at the end of the podcast. We get to hear his predictions on what he thinks is going to happen next. So we will not be spoiling anything in this podcast past chapter five. Are you ready to get this show on the road? I am ready. It's been a little while. We took a a bit of a longer break between episodes. We had life things. We had some life things. So People have that stuff. Hopefully, we can all remember where we left off. Well, you can always go back and listen to episode 119 again. But we start off with chapter four of Gardens of the Moon. In this chapter... Tattersail gets pulled further into the bridge burner's predicament. She's not thrilled about her role as the crazy puppet babysitter, but she hates Tayshren even more, and the bridge burners are her best shot at taking him down. Paran turns out not to be dead, thanks to the intervention of Opon, the twin gods of chance. They make a deal with Hood, the god of death, Paran's life for the life of someone who is close to him. Paran doesn't get a say in the matter. He does get a lucky sword and a swift kick back onto the mortal coil. Calum smuggles Paran back into camp and leaves him in Tattersail's care. Meanwhile, Dujak One-Arm gives Whiskey Jack permission to desert the army if he and the bridge burners survive the next mission, the infiltration of Darugistan, the last free city of Genabacus. One of the Hounds of Shadow follows Hairlock back to Tattersail's place and attacks. It is wounded by Paran and escapes before Hairlock can devour its soul. So many sentences you wouldn't think would go together. <laughs> know, right? And yet it all gels. This It feels like one of those weird jello salads that you're like, I don't know if pineapple is going to be good in this, but but it is. This chapter is like, you know, when you're a kid and you get those pictures and it's like, it's like on the picture on the left is normal uh-huh. and the picture on the right is all these weird things like the trees are made out of candy canes uh-huh. and there's, you know, uh, and the, you know, the dog's ears are licorice sticks, mm-hmm. you know, like this chapter feels like the picture on the right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, there's I a see l- that. There's a lot of crazy shit that happens here. It's not as crazy as... Uh, the Siege of Pale, mm-hmm. where we got like 13 like major magical right. things like just all happened within like two pages of each other. But it's still pretty damn crazy. It is. So do you have any notes on the Snapters for chapter four? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a whole lot that I can actually get from it, though. Authored by Talk the Younger. Mm-hmm. That's about all that I could really say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read it several times trying to say, 
can I connect it back to something I couldn't I couldn't really right couldn't really do it. I thought this snapter was important because it talks about the bridge burners. I'll just I'll just read it real quick. It's short, or at least part of it that I wrote down. They were of a kind then, the histories writ large in tattooed tracery, the tales a tracking of old wounds. But something glowed hard in their eyes, those flame-gnawed arches, that vanishing span. They are their own past, each in turn destined to fall in line on the quiet wayside, beside the river they refuse to name. So I love the layering of the mystery surrounding the bridge burners. Yeah. One thing I noticed about them is anytime that the bridge burners are mentioned, someone has seems to always need to na- start naming their deeds. The bridge burners, they did this, they did that, they did, you know, we don't get the actual backstory. So it kind of is, it's an enticing little hint at that all of the things that these characters have been through. Yeah, it's yeah. a nice way to layer them and kind of add to their mystique. And I just thought this poem was a good way of enhancing that. Yeah, for sure. So we open up with Tattersail and the Bridge Burners kind of putting their cards on the table. Not everything gets laid out, but they do give her more information and kind of draw her fully into their, to being on their team. Yeah, and a lot of what the Bridge Burners are talking about in this opening section are things we kind of already know. Not not all of it, but some of it's stuff we already know about Sari and right. you know her affiliation with House Shadow and all that. But we get it from the perspective of Tattersail hearing it for mm-hmm. the first time, and and she tells us things we didn't know. Yes, you know. So one thing the Tattersail tells us is that Hairlock, uh, in addition to probably not being completely all there before he became a puppet, is now like really really out there <laughs> behavior yeah. wise um she's and it has to do with him chewing holes in his own warrens into the the space between the warrens which is pure chaos um and it's making him extremely powerful but also extremely unstable yeah and though and that chaos concept was actually my first note you know this idea that that chaos is sort of the space in between the Warrens, it's the, you know, and you get this sense that it's this sort of unknowable quantity, mm-hmm. but that what he's doing, you know, in terms of tearing apart the fabric and the boundaries is is going to have an impact on everybody. Mm-hmm. And like, this is like, it's going to change the way magic works for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a permanent major change. Yes, I mean, they say that sort of outright, but then they just sort of kind of go on and deal with their more mundane day-to-day issues. It's a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like the others in A Song of Ice and Fire where, hey, there's this unholy, incredible force coming from the North, but first we have to settle our, you know... Our political differences. Our political differences (laughs) and talk about whether or not the Golden Company is this or, you know... It's, you know, hey, hey, Tattersail, or I'm sorry, uh, Hairlock is completely changing the way all of magic will work and destroying the fabric on which our universe is built. Where's that 15 year old girl at? You know, like, like, but what's a little unusual about Steven Erickson's magic system in, in this world is just how malleable it is. So we also find out in this section 
that the Shadow Warren has for millennia been inaccessible, all of a sudden it has now reopened. After the Emperor's assassination, all of a sudden these cats, Amanus and Cotillion, Shadow Throne and the Rope, show up and reopen the Shadow Warren and kind of take it over as its gods. And I just, I, I think that's, it's to me that seems very unique. Um, it's it's not something that you see in a lot of fantasy series. Usually, if you've got these kind of higher level magical systems, like things are the way they are, they're not changing so quickly that just every casual magic user notices. Um, the, the gods just kind of come and go very casually in this universe. Yeah, for sure. That conversation about the Shadow Warren. I wrote down a lot of bullet points there. Mm -hmm. It was another one of those sections where every sentence had some degree of relevance. So what so, did you notice there? So we talked, you know, at first, there's that conversation, as you as you mentioned, about Amanus and Cotillion, which, by the way, I'm taking as confirmation of my first correct prediction. Which was, remind us. Which was that Amanus and Cotillion are the old emperor mm -hmm. and Dasim Ultor. Mm -hmm. So that's that's uh, that was what I speculated, and I'm I'm calling that one correct. The other thing I noted is right after that, this line, Tattersail closed her eyes. Damn it! It's that obvious, isn't it? So when they come to the realization, you know that hey. Seems like, you know, Shadow uh, Amanus and Cotillion are heavily connected mm -hmm. to the Emperor and the old First Sword. They happen to pop up mm -hmm. right after, you know, they died is mm -hmm. when this all went down. She's She says, damn it, it's that obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm like, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. Like, why? She obviously knows mm -hmm. more than she's letting on about it. Right. And is upset that it's that easy for people to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the other things I noted. And then there's the conversation uh, that Quick Ben says, it was long ago occupied by the Tista door. And she says, who's that? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just telling you what I read. I don't, I don't know who they are. And then we get a conversation about, she's like, well, isn't it like, isn't it maybe the Warren of illusions? And he's mm -hmm. like, no, no. Stop trying to trip me. It's mm -hmm. not the warrant of illusions. That's a false warrant. Mm -hmm. You know, but I took that as her trying to shift the convert. Like, she's trying to throw them off the scent. Mm -hmm. Why, I can't possibly imagine. I made a prediction anyway. Nice. <laughs> but that was probably the, of this section, that was the, the area that I thought was the most sort of world-building plot relevant. So there are three sort of backstory characters mentioned here. There's Kellenved and Dancer, who started the Malazan Empire. And then there's Decemel Tor, who was the first sword of the empire. And Tattersail tells us that back in the Seven Cities, the word is that Decemel Tor, the first sword, accepted Hood's offer. Hood is the the god of death, god of death to yeah. become the knight of death, the knight of house death. But something went wrong. Uh, Decemultor renounced the title. Drama, drama. Shit went down. I don't know what happened. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't, I wasn't there. All the other ascendants have started meddling, and that is what led to the deaths of these three characters. Mm -hmm. Which caused me to remember Geno saying in the prologue, 
it said he betrayed a god and then just mm-hmm. sort of shrugging. Yeah. You know, and it once again brings back that point. How did he know so early in the process? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the conflict surrounding Sari amongst the bridge burners, because I think this is really significant in the, for this entire section. I mean, it boils down to <laughs> Caleb and Quick Ben want to kill Sari. <laughs> She's crazy, man. <laughs> but Whiskey Jack isn't convinced that Sari is, is evil. This is my favorite part. Maybe my favorite part of the whole section, mm-hmm. which I didn't really, it was, you know, it was on like a third read that mm-hmm. I'm like, because we had a lot of time. Between yes, <laughs> so it was like on the third read that I sort of caught up with this, but, but I love his spirited defense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't hunt for excuses because I don't like to think that's how nasty we get. Mm-hmm. We look at sorry and we see reflections of ourselves. Who'd take it if we don't like what we see? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, you go, Whiskey Jack. Shame you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> is he, though? He, about this, 100%. <laughs> That's the thing, is we know, you know, we. I love his standing up for her uh-huh. and like, like, she's a reflection of you and you guys just don't like it because she's a girl and I think this is mm-hmm. ridiculous. But we know she is an agent of the devil. Like, I, I mean, literally, she's literally like the agent. I mean, she of a is demon. possessed by like an insane an assassin god. God, but right? but is, but is there still part of her inside? I don't know. I, I did like his phrase. He said, "Having her around is like having spiders down your shirt." Yeah. I'm like, that is the, a terrible way to be described. But I think it speaks more to Whiskey Jack's character yeah, and the fact that he always sees the best in people. And what a remarkable thing to be able to write a character who's so um, jaded and and grizzled, but yet still holds on to that ability. Yeah. And then and then he ends his little speech with saying, I know how things go when Mm -hmm. gods step into the fray. Mm -hmm. The lines around his eyes tighten momentarily. A replaying of memories. Shit went down. I know. Drama, drama. (laughs) (laughs) It's the second staring off into the middle distance, Uh squeezing his fist. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's very dramatic. But not as dramatic as Tattersail when Whiskey Jack tries to give her a chance to walk away. And she has the best line here. Uh, She says... The only death I fear is dying ignorant. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Tattersail's pretty awesome. She's badass, right? Yeah. A couple of other points before we move on to the next section. Uh, there's this that I that I noted. A blossoming of power filled the room and Tattersail spun to face Quick Ben. The wizard had accessed his warren. The sorcery bled strange, swirling flavors that she could not recognize, and it frightened her with its intensity. There's not enough true masters in this world for me to not know you. Who are you, Quick Ben? Whiskey Jack interjected. Everybody ready? <laughs> Time to go. <laughs> Time to go. I don't want to have well, that conversation. On that note. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Not going there. And then it ends with, 
Hi, Hal Shadow, and a knife in the dark. Mm-hmm. A new game has begun, or the old one has just turned. How do you write something like that and not have it sound like completely over the top cheesy? But it doesn't come off that way. No, it do- no, it doesn't. Uh, only after you read it five times and really <laughs> dig it apart. Yeah. Or take it out of context. Take it out of context, uh-huh. exactly. But in context, no, it doesn't sound that way. The The second I know was a, just slightly, mm-hmm. maybe a little a over little, the top. Maybe on the fifth reread. On the fifth reread, I was like, okay, that's a little. I will say, you know what I wrote down like at least eight times in my notes? Fiddler has a bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling. <laughs> Fiddler's pacing, pacing around. She said, no, 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 no. Definitely not good. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Are you ready to talk about Peron? Let's talk about Peron. All right. So first note, Hood's Gate. It's made of people. (laughs) It's made of people. Yeah, so Peron pretty much wakes up in a textbook hellscape. (laughs) Yeah, that's... that's Blighted plane, no sun, gateway to nowhere, built out of blackened corpses. I I mean, textbook. was... Pretty wicked. It's pretty metal. Is that some sort of basalt? No, it's people. It's fucking people. <laughs> like, like there was. It did not take it take him long it's to really arrive. Kind of on the nose like, there. <laughs> like, let me take a closer look. Should at that. we make that... this gate out of? Wow. I know. <laughs> the the agonized, tortured souls of. Some random people I killed a million years ago. A bunch of randos. (laughs) Welcome to their suffering. (laughs) So he's greeted by Opon. This whole scene is fucking wicked. Sorry. It's really wicked. So he's greeted by Opon. They also objectify him. (laughs) And they're here to meddle, basically. Just here to stir shit up. One thing I noted is they that Opon tells him that they don't like how the other ascendants are trying to rig the game uh, because their thing is uncertainty. So I thought that was important because the gods have very pretty much that we've met behave like humans as far as mm-hmm. their motivations, um, why they're doing what they're doing. But this also tells us that they they're kind of bound to their nature as well. The gods of chance want uncertainty. You know, the mm-hmm. gods of shadow are, you know, your kind of textbook assassin types. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's not that they're just randomly choosing these. They're also their nature kind of shapes their motivations as well. So basically these twins are here. They're meddling, um, but they they don't want to act openly against the other ascendants. But one twin seems to want to uh, be a little bolder in their actions than than the other. Yeah, and she says, or he says... I, the I, female I, wants to save Paran. The male twin more wants to hang well, he, back. He he doesn't. He wants to save him too, but not at the not with the same level of risk right. yeah. that she's willing to take. But that's not where I was going. Yeah. When they first come on the scene, he says, "We've long admired your." His eyes widen. Sword, the woman finished, a smirk in her tone. I'm like, first of all, ooh. <laughs> like, I mean, even in heaven they or hell, they descend to dick jokes? Is that like, yes. Is that what this is? That's exactly what that was. We've been watching you. 
And you got in the, the shower. In the shower. <laughs> you got the nicest one at this gate. <laughs> like, I mean, like, what are they saying? But but it isn't really that. He says, Opon, the twins of chance, and my sword, my untested blade purchased years ago. Oh, that sword, that sword, okay. Uh, <laughs> with a name I chose so capriciously. And I'm like, but they mean, and we find out later, there's mm-hmm. something about his, there is something about his sword. I have no idea what it is. And he says, you know, this name that I chose so capriciously, and in my brain... I was like, I don't know where this came from. I was like, he named his sword Opan. And then I went back and I looked for every reference to the word Opan. No, I just completely right. fabricated. I have no idea. That would have been cool. That would have been cool, but no, that was not what it is. But they never, like, he never at any point references that I could find mm-hmm. naming his sword. Mm-hmm. And even when this whole sword thing comes up, he's like, oh, that name, I just randomly happened to choose this name but he doesn't tell us what the name is and i still think they were talking about his penis (laughs) they were definitely also talking (laughs) about his sword you're right because at the end yes you know the sword proves to be something special but we still don't really know what or opon blessed the sword in some way (laughs) did opon also bless his sword i mean We'll cover that scene on the other podcast. <laughs> Someone close to you shall walk through death's gate in your place. No, no, take me instead. I beg you. But who? The only person that he seems to have any genuine affection for is Felison. And we know that she survives. So there's nobody else... I, somebody, I think they, it's not necessarily, it's somebody physically close to him would have to die in his place. Someone in his shadow. I thought in his shadow meant like in his family line. And they don't really explain that, but I don't think it necessarily means someone that he is close to. Hmm, okay. But what, what I noted about all of these interactions is that Peron stays saucy to the end. Like, Oh, yeah. And, and, and he's got some ball. He's got, I mean, well, yeah, because, saucy balls. Like, I'm just saying. <laughs> they didn't bring that up. <laughs> like, we've been watching you in the shadow, and we think your saucy balls are going to pull you through. <laughs> you got some pluck, kid. He does. But, but you're right, because they don't really get him out of the situation. Mm-hmm. They just sort of like pause things Mm -hmm. for a second and give him a hint. Yeah. And it is his defiant fuck you nature Mm -hmm. that manages to keep him alive. Yeah, because they kind of, you know, they they maybe arrange things so he's not going to have to pass through the gate, but then they leave him for Amanis, who shows up. Yeah. You know, and he's got to talk his way around. And and he says to the, the Shadow Throne, you know, the god of the Shadow War, and he's like, yeah, you can die too. And, and when, when you, you do, do <laughs> I'll be waiting. Uh, my like, skinny ass with my saucy balls will be here waiting for you. Like, damn, when's the last time someone talked to him that way? Right? Which uh, is probably why he was like... He's like, oh, okay. Hmm, like, he must know something I don't know. Because <laughs> no one's that stupid. 
But then he, so he he comes back to life, mm-hmm. and when he do, he does, it's like playing your life in reverse, sort mm-hmm. of like his life flashes before his eyes, mm-hmm. holding the hands of his two sisters as they stood waiting on the hard cobbles of the courtyard, waiting, waiting for someone. The images seemed to lurch sideways in his head. His mother's dress? No, an old woman in the service of the household. Not his parents' bedrooms, but those of the servants, and they're... In the courtyard with his sisters, they'd they'd stood half the morning, waiting the arrival of their father and mother, two people they barely knew. Mm -hmm. And without knowing at all what any of that is in reference to, I know it's hugely significant. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's a classic put a pin in it Mm -hmm. moment. I don't know what any of that means, but there are definitely secrets in his childhood that are going to be critical to the story. Mm -hmm. So... Peron comes back to life. He is found by Picker and Ancy. Second best scene in the... <laughs> yeah. And he just wakes up screaming. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy shit. I love that. And he is smuggled back into the camp by Calum mm-hmm. and the Bridge Burners. And we get this little scene that's through the eyes of two sort of just rando guards. And I thought this was just such a wonderful way to emphasize the dynamics in the second army. You know, because... The guards, just without even asking any questions, offer to be blinded by the rain for the next hour. They're like, whatever you need. The bridge burners are held that high yeah, yeah. in esteem. And, and the second army sees itself as k- kind of a an organization unto itself. You can just really see the fracturing of loyalty there. Yeah, yeah. And I also thought it was significant when they see Peron. So they see this officer, bloody officer, being smuggled back into the camp. And they say... Opon's luck, the pull, not the push. So I, I just like that layer as well. You know? Yeah, as do I. And I, I and I noted that and highlighted it. And man, what does that mean? You know. And I, I go back to times where Tattersea was talking about Opon, and they say, you know, the push and pull of luck, luck for good, mm-hmm. luck for bad. Mm-hmm. But I, it also reminds me of Riga. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, when she says "prod and pull, mm-hmm. prod and pull," yeah, good catch. I mean, it seems to me that those two are, are are referencing the same thing. Yeah, you know, and then it causes me to to get a little batshit, mm-hmm. a little tinfoily, nice. and say, "Okay, we know that Amanus and Cotillion show up and corrupt." Uh, sorry, the mm-hmm. the girl who, by the way. The girl's name who became sorry was Becky. It was like, Becky. <laughs> so, I mean, it was definitely Becky with the good hair. It was definitely Becky <laughs> Becky with the good. I mean, it had to be, right? So, so Becky gets corrupted and turned into sorry. Who's to say mm-hmm. that Riga wasn't corrupted by Opon mm. beforehand? Now, I don't think so cuz I don't think that's how they act. Right. But it is interesting that prod and pull this sort of axiom for Mm -hmm. opon is like how it all begins opon sort of seems to have a type though and we'll get into that in chapter five okay i'm just saying they seem to like the young handsome men yeah (laughs) fair point so I also thought it was funny how KLM tells the guards to, if they see a 15 year old girl kind of walking to run, just don't even abandon your post. Yeah, yeah. Just run. Run away. 
It's just a bunny. <laughs> yes. All right. Sorry is the the Monty Python bunny with the with the big teeth. Absolutely. So back in her room, Tattersale is doing another reading of the cards. Mm-hmm. So one card, so that she said there's a hound sort of at the center of this pattern. And one that comes up that is significant in this reading is the Mason of Death. And the Mason is the brother to the soldier of death. It signifies the promise of death to many and often signifies a man who once worked with stone. So I thought that was important because um, we find out in the next little um, tidbit that uh, Whiskey Jack and Fiddler were both stone workers. Yeah, yeah. I also thought it was a reference to that sort of Mouth of Sauron character we had that pops up who just keeps changing around at the gates of, at Hood's Gate. The Hood's sort of Emissary. Hood's Emissary. I thought it was kind of a reference to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's accurate, but that was the way I took it. It made me think of Whiskey Jack, just because in the next sort of scene, they he and Fiddler are talking about how they both used to be stone workers. That's true, yeah. And then we also have, you know, as you said, we have this sort of circling around the hound. And then we have, again, this character of the knight and the knight's sword reached a black smoky streak towards the hound at the spiral's apex. Mm-hmm. And at, in this instance, she knew its meaning. The future held a clash between the knight and high house shadow. And I've always, like, most of the cards in terms of who they are are starting to make sense to me at this point, mm-hmm. except for the knight. High house dark's knight? Yeah. I, I think that that is Anamanda Rake. That's who I thought it was as well, but this little spiral game that she's playing mm-hmm. seems to be predicting the events of this very chapter. You know, the black smoky sword streaking towards the hound at the spiral's apex makes me think of Peron and his sword. Mm-hmm. I mean, because everything that happens in this chapter, if you look at it that way, mm-hmm. that the knight, uh, the knight's sword is the sword that Peron is using. I'm not saying that Peron is the the knight of House Dark, mm-hmm. but if you look at it as his sword is the stand-in for that card, mm-hmm. then every single thing in this chapter, in that little laying out of the cards, is wrapped up and contained. Mm-hmm. So that's why it all sort of fit in a neat package if you looked at it that way. It's not to say it couldn't have multiple meanings. Yeah, I, but I'm pretty sure the knight of High House Dark is is the... Animander Rake, the Son of Darkness, that's kind of his, that's confirmed at this point. Okay. That that's who that is. But I like your point, and I, and I think that um, the sword is going to be significant um, in some way as well. But I, I also thought um, it was important to note that she's noticing, and these cards that she reads change every time she reads them. Yeah, so yeah. what she's noticing in the the High House Dark's night card is something hovering in the sky above him, mm-hmm. which I guess hasn't been there before. Yeah, and we still don't really know what that is. And so Tattersale, while she is doing this this reading, she's also kind of ruminating on her past and the situation that she finds herself in. And we're beginning to see, I think, one of the central crises of her character here. Um, and that's her tendency to freeze with indecision and and her guilt at having done so at critical moments in her past. You know, we saw her kind of freeze on the battlefield when um, she was attacked by Tayshran and Callow gave his life for her. Um, and she thinks back to a time when she 
refused to read the deck on the day that um, that Mock, her lover, was killed by the emperor. Mm-hmm. And then she thinks back to when she was a child, when she foresaw the destruction of her village, but she ignored that foretelling. So she's kind of thinking back on all those times in her life and kind of deciding that she's going to do something different this time. But I think that really speaks to an important theme of this book, which is that of personal agency in the face of like vast, uncontrollable forces. You know, and it's a it's a neat contrast between, you know, Tattersail and then between, you know, we see it in Paran as he's standing up to the Empire and gods. And here he's standing at Hood's Gate, just, you know, just basically taking charge of the situation that many people wouldn't. You know, we see the bridge burners, you know, choosing to continue to act even when they're given an out. Yeah, because later we'll 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 have Dujek give them an opportunity mm-hmm. to walk away. Yep, and they won't. Uh, the other thing that I noted because I, I didn't, I'm reading it now. I'm reading my notes now, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing what you're saying, sort of for the first time, even though I read it with you. Um, but I also noted once again. This is not as story critical as what you were referencing, but once again, the way the Empire just, and this is even before the Empire existed, but the way in this world they just take young children and snatch them up. Mm -hmm. Because it's after this point that she gets snatched up as a sorceress Mm -hmm. and gets trained. And, you know, we know that, we know that Fiddler was pushed into the army at a Mm -hmm. young age. You know, we obviously sorry was recruited at the age of twelve. We just see this continuing uh, willingness to traumatize and abuse and recruit children. Mm-hmm. It just speaks to a degree of cruelty, and we can't tie it specifically to the empire, or the emperor, or the empress Lacine. Mm-hmm. It's a, it predates all of that. It's mm-hmm. some it's endemic in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're so right. And I, I think that's done with a purpose because we, what we see over and over is characters in this book finding the strength to take the next right action, even when they seem to be completely powerless or it seems, you know, in the face of this kind of machine of empire and this grim world that they're in, they're still choosing to make the next right action. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the just the power in that and the importance of that. I, and I, I just love that theme. I'm totally here for it. And I, I think that's one of the most kind of important messages of the book. Yeah. So next up, we get a meeting between Whiskey Jack and Do Jack. And Fiddler as well. Yeah, and Fiddler's got a bad feeling. Did I mention? Yeah, <laughs> and that he's got a bad What's your feeling? feeling. What's your feeling on this Fiddler? I, it's a, it's a bad feeling. Okay, how about Fiddler leaving his sword in the puddle? I, yeah, I he's love like love it. He's like it only happened one time. <laughs> and then Dujek shows up and goes, "Is your sword lying in a puddle again? <laughs> again?" <laughs> I just I love that. We we again see here they're kind of talking about Tattersail before the meeting starts and whiskey jack choosing to see the best in her fiddler's kind of being like i don't know she seems really i got, str- a, bad I got a bad feeling <laughs> i got a bad feeling about her <laughs> about her and uh and whiskey jack again we see him seeing the best in someone 
but I did I did like what specifically what uh, Fiddler said. He said she's got some old demons riding her, is my guess, and they're closing in. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like Dirty Fiddler brain. with the call. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you know this is right after her sort of memory, yeah, of you know her demons of the past, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of coming back to haunt her. So we find out that that it's pretty much acknowledged that Dujek knows that the the Empire, the Empress's orders are really kind of geared at getting rid of the bridge burners. Yeah. He acknowledges that to Whiskey Jack and he, he gives him permission to walk. He says, look, if you guys live through this next assignment, just go. Yeah. Now, Whiskey Jack is too loyal, though, and he knows that he's not going to do that. You know, um, he knows that no matter what, that that Dujak is not going to walk away from the Empire and that he's going to continue to try and do what's right by his men and that Whiskey Jack isn't going to let him do that alone. And so he's loyal. And then Dujak is still loyal to the Empire for some unfathomable reason. He won't allow um, any kind of hint of mutiny. So the bridge burners leave Paran with Tattersail and they take off for Darugistan. Uh, on these quarrels and the Moranth show up again. And I, I really like this layer of mystery that gets added here because the Moranth are a very mysterious race. Nobody really knows even what they look like under their weird bug helmets, um, but only that they're extremely powerful and that their alliance has completely changed the empire. So this has been emphasized a whole lot. Uh, only four chapters into this book. Um, and uh, the bridge burners all kind of show up and um, they're all pissed at sorry. Damn it, sorry. They're all standing around. <laughs> Another and captain. Yelling at her. She's just sitting there eating an apple. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Not paying any attention to him. And Whiskey Jack has this memory of when Sari, you know, kind of first joined them and they had captured some dudes and, and Sari just tortures them, you know, right in the balls. She's just... <laughs> Right in the saucy balls. Right in their saucy balls. And it just kind of highlights how unsettling um, this character is. But they still take her with them, and they head off. And this is where they have the long, not long, but where they where he has the observation that, you know, she's been with them for like two and a half years, and right. they still call her recruit. Right, because they'll take her with them, and he's not going to order her killed, but... She's not one of them. Yeah, they want to keep that distinction. Even this batch of cold-blooded killers is like, no, she's she's not one of us. Yeah. You know? We close up this chapter with the hound attack. So we've talked a lot about kind of the the horror genre notes that we've kind of seen in this book. Um, There's definitely some flavor there. And I'm definitely get some Cujo flavor. Oh yeah, I'm Cujo glad you, was terrifying. I'm glad you went there, right? <laughs> oh my god, yeah, terrifying. Cujo came out when I was like, the movie came out when mm-hmm. I was like really little, mm-hmm. and the commercials on television gave me nightmares. I mean, I never watched any scary movies really until I went to college, and then I. I I was forced to watch. It was like, oh, you've never seen Cujo. And I just kind of shivered. I mean, that was one of the scarier ones for me. Listen, you'd name your dog Cujo. (laughs) You're asking for it. (laughs) But there's this scene here where the the old guards uh, who promised Calum to... uh, 
to be blind by the rain. They're having a changing of the guard. And um, right in the middle of their changing of the guard, one of them looks over and says, look at that dog. And you're just like, ah. And then, you know, of course, it's a it's a hellhound. Yeah, yeah. That wipes them out. And then, you know, finds, has followed Hairlock here, um, who's been scampering through the Warrens. And that just the writing in that scene and then the following scene where Hairlock comes back into the room and just the description of his puppet movements is so like like vivid and creepy i know it's really pretty cool so it opens with gear which is the name of the shadow hound Mm -hmm. and i was really surprised that we would actually get something from the perspective of the shadow hound Mm -hmm. because i really kind of thought of them as just being big dumb monstrous animals right and that is not what it is. That is, right. you know. So we get it from the actual perspective of this reasonably smart, thousands-year-old mystical monster. Mm-hmm. So we have the coloring of the gear and then the guard mm-hmm. saying, look at that dog, look at that dog, oh my God, we're all dead, you know. <laughs> and then in the middle of that, Hairlock comes back and he's like super cocky. Mm-hmm. He's like, Safe and sound. Sorry to disappoint you because mm-hmm. he's such a prick. Mm-hmm. You know, and then as you said, it, the line says, the marionette waved his one tiny gloved hand and the door behind him closed, latch falling into place. Sauntering into the room's center and pirouetting once before sitting down, legs splayed and arms hanging limp. And I was like, oh my God, he's so creepy. He's so creepy. It looked, the little marionette movements uh-huh. and the way like that, it moves like a puppet. Mm-hmm. Like it's really creepy. Much feared these hounds of shadow, but in the end, nothing more than glorified mutts, stupid and slow, and sniffing at every tree, finding not of sly hairlock. And who should bust through the door? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they found him. They did, and these hounds are powerful. So, like you said, intelligent, but also. Bl- pretty much blasts through Tattersail's defenses in like a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. Ha- however, then when uh, Hairlock starts attacking the Hound with chaos and is going to destroy its soul, Tattersail is like, "That's I guess that's worse than death." You yeah, know? yeah, and that and that was where I started to have some notes. Hound, she screams, "He's reaching for your soul! Escape! Get out of there!" And then. Later, when Hairlock goes to sort of lunge at the hound, she trips him on purpose. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is a creature that was seconds from eating her, Mm -hmm. killing all of them Mm -hmm. mercilessly. Still, that's somehow, that's a bridge too far. I think it's interesting because here is a world where I think they they know that there is an afterlife. You're going through Hood's Gate and there's something on the other side. Yeah, yeah. As long as your soul isn't destroyed. So it just, that that puts a, a unique spin on on your worldview, I think, when, yeah. you, when you know for sure that there is some kind of afterlife. Well, and we also just see continued streaks of Tattersail's sort of humanity that we don't necessarily get out of other characters. Yeah. It, maybe, it, it's not to say it's not there. We, we certainly get it in Whiskey Jack to a degree as well. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the one who was saying to, you know, to Anna Amanda Rake, not really, to, to herself to Anna Amanda Rake, 
call our bluff, please. Like, yeah. don't don't make like we we don't have to kill you know all these people. Please do you know? Mm-hmm. So like you can tell there's a, a degree of humanity there, but to even go so far as to openly oppose Hairlock, who has already threatened vengeance on everyone with two legs mm-hmm. like is a it's a bold move to make yeah and 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 then that's another important point is that every character we have met with the exception of like Peron, hairlock has vowed to kill i'm gonna yeah I'll, pretty I'll, much <laughs> as soon as this is over you're the first one to go you know like <laughs> to everybody he meets yeah like waiter didn't bring enough bread and he's he's on my goddamn list <laughs> you know like this guy like i can't be the only one reading this mm-hmm. saying having so much of this plan resting on hairlock's shoulders mm-hmm. is a terrible fucking idea yeah. <laughs> and i think that is that is whiskey jack's opinion as well it's a bad goddamn idea so but it does it ends in a way that is surprising to us. Peron, in his post-traumatic, not post-traumatic, he's he's in shock. Mm-hmm. He's in a state of shock. He just woke up from being dead. There's a long conversation about how physically he's intact, mm-hmm. but emotionally and mentally, yeah. spiritually, he is not there. Yeah. And he walks into this room with like a blanket around him, mm-hmm. like he's a hospital patient, mm-hmm. into the middle of this scene where Tattersail can't get up because she's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. Hairlock and Gear are in this mad scramble, like having this like psychic battle, mm-hmm. you know, to erase his soul. And then Peron walks into here like a feeble old man shuffling about, you know, to get his, his noon meds. And then raises his longsword, lunges, and stabs the beast, you know? And you're, whoa, where did this come from? And then the writing of this scene is really good Mm -hmm. to me. A bellow thundered from Gear's throat. The hound staggered back into the ruins of the bed, biting at the wound gushing from its side. Hairlock screamed in rage and jumped forward, closing in on Gear. Tattersail scythed one foot into the puppet's path, flinging him against the far wall. Gear howled. A dark rift opened around them in the sound of tearing burlap. He whirled and plunged into deepening shadow. The rent was closed and was gone, leaving in its wake a rippling of cold air. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot happens in that short little time. Yep. And since Gear doesn't die, that means Shadow Throne is going to know about Hairlock. Yeah. That's how you end a first section. That is how you end a first section. And now for something completely different. And now for something. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So in chapter five, we open on the city of Darugistan. And a bunch of characters you've never heard of. (laughs) With its gaslights, thriving underworld, and memorable characters. There's Krupp, the roly-poly prophet, Tallow, the doomed assassin, and Crocus, the lucky thief. Krupp dreams of six beggars who convince him not to flee his beloved city, despite the arrival of Moonspawn and the fact that any minute now the Malazan army is going to show up and conquer everyone. Tallow and Crocus are both stalked by mysterious hunters. 
Tala was killed, and Crocus only survives due to the interference of Opon, those meddling twins. With the imminent arrival of the bridge burners, things are about to get very exciting in this town. This boring old, quaint little Darujistan. old, quiet, underworld city. So there's something you said there that I had some speculation about, but mm-hmm. did not read. I don't know if I just, I don't know if it was there and I just completely missed it or what, but you okay. said the arrival of Moonspawn. Is it referenced in chapter five that Moonspawn has ar- has arrived? Uh, in Krupp's dream. Okay. It's hovering over the city, the thing, the shadow hovering over the city. Okay. All right. I was not clear that that's what it, mm-hmm. what it was. However, that is what I speculated. Right. Uh, but we'll get into that later. Okay. First, let's talk about the Snapter. We've got two poems, and I just want to read the second one because I just think it's brilliant. It goes, And if this man sees you in his dreams, while you rock in the season's brooding night, neath a tree's stout branch and your shadow is hooded above the knotted rope, so will the winds of his passing twitch your stiffened limbs into some semblance of running. God damn. I'm sorry. I just think that's really good. It is. I can't really make out what it means like a lot of the Snapters, Mm -hmm. but I have two completely different interpretations. Okay. So the first interpretation is it talks about, you know, while you rock beneath a tree stout branches, and a knotted rope. So it's it seems to be referencing someone who is hung, mm-hmm. right? And we have Krupp walking past a hanged body in his dream. Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, indicate that it, you know, that it seems that that hanged person is, um, is relevant. And it seems like, you know, Krupp seems to have some sort of prophetic powers in his dream. So this could be something about him, Krupp, in general, or a completely different interpretation is it's somebody like Anamanda Rake, and what it's saying is that this son of a bitch is so creepy that if he sees you, even your hanged body will leap off the tree and flee in terror. Mm -hmm. I don't know that either of those are right. That's just the best I could come up with. Right. So what did you think of Krupp? Crop's awesome, man. Introduction to him. He might be my favorite character so far. Yeah. Him or Tattersail. So I wrote down this quote that I think describes Krupp very well. Uh, it says, There were miseries in this world, and then there was misery. In times of conscience, Krupp held the world's concerns above his own. Fortunately, he reflected, such such times were few. And this, he told himself, was not one of them. Yeah. yeah. So Krupp is a prophet who who does not need cards or bones to practice divination. And we meet him in one of his dreams. Yeah. We've never met this guy in real life. Right. Yet. Yet. Uh, his description of himself is just hilarious. Yeah. You know, somewhat clumsy with a bowl of soup. He's... No one has ever called Krupp a fool. <laughs> His voice is very unique, though. Absolutely, yeah. The, and the writing is really, really good. Mm-hmm. The way, the personification of this character is magnificent. Yeah. And the whole scene where he walks into the, the abandoned inn mm-hmm. and has, I mean, it's, it's really, really, really phenomenal. 
it seems like Krupp is trying to tell us, as you mentioned, he has the power of prophecy, but it seems like it comes in the form of his dreams. Or or, or maybe that's just an additional thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But but early on, he references the the ever spinning coin. Mm-hmm. So right right there, you know that he is somehow tuned into the same frequency mm-hmm. as Opan and what's going on. Yeah. You know, the Tattersail and all these cats are just picking up on. Um, and then he has the, you know, the line, a breeze swept into his dream and down from the north, carrying with it the smell of rain. Rain? But the year has just begun. Does it rain in spring? Perhaps this scent is no more than a lake's own breath. Yes, indeed, the question is settled. He squinted at the dark ridge of clouds above Lake Azure. And this is where I speculated that the last time we saw Moonspawn, it was headed towards Lake Azure. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the map, Pale and Darujistan are basically on opposite sides of the lake. Mm -hmm. So it would seem that Moonspawn would have to at least be passing this way. Right. Now, what that means, you know, is Moonspawn, did Moonspawn just say, ah, well, Pale's fucked, I'm going to move over to Darujistan and, mm-hmm. and hang out there, as the, you know, and, and try and stop the Empire there? Or, you know, I have no, no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. But that was where I sort of speculated that his, prophes- his prophecy was really about Moonspawn. But you already told me that, so let's move oh, on to something so, different. Sorry. <laughs> but then we have, as you said, the conversation with the uh, the different characters and great, you know, interactions, all like entirely in this character's head, right? But I love that whatever aspects these are of himself continue to sort of challenge him and just ask him questions. So do you think they are aspects of himself or do you think they're some kind of other beings? I don't know. So he He seems to think they are. Well, that's what he tells them. Yeah. He he comes in, he's dreaming of this inn. There are these six beggars. He's dreamed of them before. And they say, we will grant you an audience, hapless one. It ever pleases us when we taste your particular flavor. And, uh, and and then he tells them that that he I've always thought that you were maybe just aspects of myself talking to me. Hmm. So you think that that's true? Not now. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't anymore. <laughs> I mean, we don't know at this point. When you put it like that. <laughs> so the beggars of his dream, uh, they want him not to flee. Darugistan. They want him to stay and fight for, for the lives of the people you care about and for the youth at whose feet the coin must fall. Yep. So Krupp and the beggars don't seem to think very highly of the gods. No, and Krupp notes a couple times, what are gods after all, if not the perfect victims? Mm-hmm. So he, he thinks quite highly of himself and the gullibility of the gods. Yes, he says that he's going to challenge the gods at their own game. So I guess at this point it remains to be seen. Is Krupp, uh, does he overestimate his own abilities or is he a a character who is underestimated by the people around him? You know, because we've only seen him in this sort of, you know, dream state interlude and we have no idea who he is in real life, it's hard to say. But Mm -hmm. the fact that he 
apparently is meeting with some sort of secret council of, mm-hmm. of mages in his dreams. Uh, you know that you know, and the fact that he knows about the spinning coin yes. and you know indicates that he's tapped into some kind of power. Yes. He seems to be more knowledgeable than Tattersail. Tattersail can sense the spinning coin, but he knows who it's going to affect and when. Yeah, yeah. We know very little about Darujistan, other than it sits on a huge bed of natural gas, which can't be good. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, that that just... <laughs> can't end well right so are you a prophet too i mean come on i don't think you have to be a prophet so uh but we don't know a lot about it other than you know we get hints later that it doesn't have much of a defense Mm -hmm. you know it even krupp says you know the the great grape that is ripe for the picking yes you know it, it seems on every level to be something that the Empire should just be able to come in and knock over quickly. Mm -hmm. And we even have that one, I think it was a snapter that said, you know, that talked Mm -hmm. about the two cities, the better defended city fell first. Yes. So we're led to believe that the rest of this book is going to be about Darujistan, and it's obviously not going to be as easy to topple as we think. Well, there's a lot more pages left. Yeah, so. it, we're not reading chapter five of, of eight chapters, yeah. <laughs> so it stands to reason that something's got to happen, you know? And I can tell you that Talo uh, Krafar and Crocus Younghand are not going to be defending Darujistan to the bloody end. <laughs> well, S- Talo Krafar certainly isn't. Certainly not. <laughs> um, so, you know, it seems to me that this Krupp character, I'm sure he's not the only character we're going to meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, involved in the defense of Darujistan. But this guy's got to be fairly powerful in some way. And that's really about all that I can speculate at this point. You know, and I like him. So we move on to, uh, like you said, Crocus Younghand and Talo Krafar. Mm-hmm. And these are two members of Darujistan's underworld which is highly influential in the city. It says the council rules by day, uh, but the the guilds, the criminal guilds, rule by night. Absolutely. And they sort of interplay and rely on each other as well. Um, this is a very, you know, 1920s Chicago's type yeah. government. It's also sort of classic classic D&D thieves guild assassins yes. guild yeah. sort of politics that you know that you see you've, mm-hmm. you've seen in other places and to me that's that's always fun this whole second half of the chapter is about you know these assassins and thieves getting chased by assassins mm-hmm. you know and then we've got the whole claw branch of the empire which is nothing more than another assassin's guild Mm -hmm. and shadow throne who is sort of the master of assassins on this sort of or cotillion yeah cotillion yeah who's the master of assassins sort of on this you know spiritual ascendant level and it i just find the 
the assassins within the assassins within the assassins sort of it levels and layers of inception <laughs> going yeah. on here. I love the juxtaposition, right? Mm -hmm. This local thief and assassin being chased by these badass assassins from another world like right you know like They're uber assassins uber, like the, the the game has changed well and i love the interplay between crocus and tallow's stories they're mm -hmm. both being stalked by these mysterious hunters you know one gets away one does not but it switches back and forth between their perspectives and they're both in parts of the city that they're close to each other. You know, one is on this bell tower, one has just broken into this estate. So we can kind of see this, you can just really kind of see it play out in your mind. And it also really emphasizes the role of Opon mm, because yeah. um, Opon interferes in this, uh, this hunt that's going on. Well, and interferes for one of them. For one of them, yes. Yes, so we watch Tallow, who is probably, you would think, between the two characters, the more likely to escape. He seems more physically capable. He yeah. certainly has more weapons. Versus Crocus, who is younger. Uh, he's a jewel thief. And he doesn't even really, at least in the beginning, he doesn't even really know what's going on. He doesn't. Uh, but he he's just broken into this, uh, this estate because he heard a rumor that the youngest daughter uh, was hot. Yeah. And um, she'd been getting a bunch of gifts of jewelry. So he goes in to rob her, sneaks a peek, and uh, and he's escaping. With the least fensible item in the entire estate. So I, I <laughs> thought this was kind of cool because he, he does steal all of her jewelry as well. Oh, okay. uh, but he, yeah. he takes this blue turban, uh, this fancy blue turban, and he decides he's going to keep this for himself. Where are you going to wear it, asshole? I, I think that, but I, but I think that really speaks to his character. I know, I know. You, you know, know, I think that was an important kind of character building moment. It's um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how much of his character gets built up mm -hmm. in that little short scene. In this, yeah, in this, in this scene, yeah. But these two, these two underworld um, denizens are both kind of running around being hunted. Tallow is is really doesn't stand a chance and crocus wouldn't have either except that at a critical moment he he hears a coin drop and he instinctively bends down to grab it and whoosh the crossbow you know just where his head would have been and then he sticks it in his pocket and and you can kind of count the number of times he gets a twinge in his hip right where the coin is sitting and it makes him stumble just at the right moment to avoid an another crossbow bolt that would have killed him yeah well, and, and again, the fact that it's a coin, specifically a clattering coin, mm -hmm. is cool from a thematic standpoint because mm -hmm. we have this whole spinning coin idea of Opon, but it's also a little bit of a complication, or at least for me, because I don't get to read on mm -hmm. and know what's going on because we talk about for whom the coin is going to fall this very night. Right. Peron is still in pale. And to this point, we have associated the spinning coin with his fate, but that does not seem to be necessarily what's going on. Well, no, I'm just saying, Opon has a type. Yeah, they it, like the black-haired, blue-eyed, fancy boys, young fancy boys. Yeah, right. They, they they can have more than one. They apparently there's there's a plenty of them to go around. <laughs> what and they also appear to like them connected to somebody more powerful. Yes, there's there's a lot of um, 
interesting similarities between Crocus and Paran. Because Crocus's uncle, he's talking if, if he he sort of mentions offhand if you have, you know, a if you have a an uncle who likes to dabble in magic and mm-hmm. you know forgets where he leaves his fancy equipment, then you too could, you know, have all the cool tools that I have. And then we meet his uncle with his like flying monkey mm-hmm. and like he's a mage of some kind. Yeah. So the hunters that have been chasing them use a language not heard for millennia. Um, and they're enwreathed in magic. So they're they're more this is not the claw. Um, no, it's this not is, the claw. Yeah. This is something, as you said, of of a different magnitude than we've seen before. Again, we don't know we don't know where, like, we have no idea who these people are. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like they're from High House Shadow, mm-hmm. but we don't know, are they from High House? Like, we have no idea what Warren they're tied to, what God they're tied to. Mm-hmm. So it's the introduction of, yet again, another sort of player at the game, and we don't really know who they are. And so the conversation they have when they decide to let him go. So he makes it into the inn and then he kind of like takes off. And, he's, and for a second, I was like, the first time I read this, I was like, what is this like a video game? Like you make it off the screen and, yeah. you know, the, the monster just they forget you're there ceases to exist. Yeah. Yeah. But they actually have a conversation where they decide to let him go. And they they talk about how it's been that an ascendant has meddled and that's why he got away. And that uh, it's it, one of them says it's been years since I killed an ascendant. So again, it emphasizes how the the gods in this universe are not all powerful. Um, and they mention that there is a secret war going on with the guild, and they decide that leaving Crocus as a witness might be helpful in their efforts. Yeah, but so what guild? They don't say. They don't say. They don't say. They don't say. Yeah. We just got some hints dropped. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's it. And Crocus also has his. Um, he has his Han Solo sort of moment. Yeah. When he walks into the inn and you've just like, he's, you know, it, it's a Jason Bourne sort of chase. They're jumping mm-hmm. through windows and out this and, you know, under a lady's skirts and down a roof awning. Uh-huh. And, I mean, all this crazy stuff. And then he just sort of rushes into the inn, you know, and old gal is standing there and she's like, what are you up to? And he's like, oh, nothing much, you know, yeah. and he hands him a beer, you know. <laughs> She's like, you know, it, it's his, I love you, I know, I know moment. <laughs> yes. Like, so you get, you get a lot of his character. But the other thing that I thought, uh, the other thing that I noticed in that scene is that the symbol, like the inn's awning, has a symbol of a dead black bird, feet pointed up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, there's so many symbols of birds tied mm-hmm. to uh Malazan, mm-hmm. the Malazan Empire, the the symbol of the the Talon Claw, the right. birds, the ravens, mm-hmm. all these things. It can't be a coincidence that the symbol outside of this inn in Darujistan, where it seems like the Empire's plans are gonna get stymied, that the symbol is a dead bird. That's a good catch. That's a good catch. It is the Phoenix Inn, so it's, you know. The Phoenix is... Right. Yeah, but yeah, I, the, but that is a good catch. I hadn't thought about that in reference to, you know, the Empire. I mean, cl- 
clearly Steven Erickson, with all the bird references, is trying to make that a motif. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely is. But yeah, the the conversations between the sort of unidentified, you know, super assassins were the most interesting part of the way this yes. chapter ended. But I can't for the life of me figure out who they are. No, and you're not meant to at this point. So that's all that I have. Yes, that is all that I have as well. All right, are you ready? Next up, chapter six. So you ready for listener interactions? I am ready. All right. So our first interaction comes from Theo Graham Brown, who says, this space is reserved for Chad to go off about how he really feels about Dragonlance Volume 1 after all these years without fear of upsetting Furiosa or teaching any new swear words. <laughs> so if you missed it, that is a reference <sighs> to one of our Kids Cast episodes. Yeah, it's actually where... the last episode prior to this one that I posted. Yes, oh. uh, where Chad and our one of our daughters are discussing the Dragonlance Chronicles, so you'll have to tune in. Yeah, and astute listeners can tell that I am... Very deliberate with my <laughs> word choice in terms of my opinions of the book. So, which was, of course, she loves those because she loves it. And of course, it was done intentionally. And as you may have surmised, they don't hold up. Unless you're 11. Unless and you're 11. Apparently, they're amazing. Well, I don't, I think even she is not as interested in them yeah. as she is in a lot of her other books and yeah. stuff. I, I didn't realize, you know, when I was reading those books at the time, how sort of early in the fantasy boom mm-hmm. they were. I mean, mm-hmm. these were, I mean, they're old books. They're, o- they're 40, over 40 years old, I think, mm-hmm. or about 40 years old. And they're the first ever books uh, by TSR, who, you know, ended up becoming Wizards of the Coast. And right. I mean, they led this huge boom of fantasy, but these were the first novels ever written. And you can tell, like, it's it's not great. <laughs> it's not great. Eric Allgaier says, okay, serious question. What are Liz and Chad's thoughts on resurrection in fantasy? When a character comes back from the dead, do you feel like the stakes aren't as high and take the story less seriously, like the author will hand out get-out-of-death-free cards anytime the plot requires it? And if an author does employ this trope, is it better or worse to return them immediately versus leaving it open for any character to come back? I'm just saying. If Amaram comes back in Stormlight as a 40-foot Megazord with Sadius as his left arm and Patrick Duffy as his right, it won't surprise me one bit. No, not even slightly. <laughs> What do you think? No, I think it's a good question. And I think generally I would say resurrection causes me to take death less seriously Mm -hmm. as a rule. And I think particularly if that resurrection doesn't happen right away. Mm -hmm. You know, in the case of Piran, it happens right away. And and there's a very good kind of explanation given as to what exactly is going on and and why it would be such a singular event yes yes you know you you would assume it would be a pretty singular event whereas you know with with like yasna for example you know it's a thousand pages later that that she shows up now the difference was she was not 
resurrected. Yes. She... Never died. Never died, and it was the classic fade to black, and then we don't know what happens for a thousand pages. But but yes, generally, that's my thought. What about you? I agree. It's not like it, it's not a game changer for me. It's not a. It's not an. It's not automatically a negative thing, depending on how it's done. If it's done as kind of a cheap trick, like oh, we think this character is dead, and oh, they're gonna come back. You know. Yeah. I th- I do think it is, it's a trope that needs to be used very carefully. I think, to me, it almost gets a little stickier in the situation that you see with, like, in in Stormlight and in uh, Wheel of Time, where you have these, like, ancient heroes from the past mm-hmm. who get resurrected. And then anytime you need to amp up the stakes or, or you know, you, you make the battle look like it's going to fade, and then... Mm-hmm suddenly another ancient hero from the past pops Mm -hmm. up and she shoots her arrow, you know, and kills everybody. You know, that is a little annoying to me. Yeah. Brian Kemper says, is Cotillion really dumb? And why is the answer yes? When he possesses Sari, he says he will use her against Lassine, who could never track her down, could never even so much as guess. And yet here we are, and it seems like everyone knows she's a killer who attacked Peron and is a tool for House Shadow. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, pretty much anyone who comes into her presence is like, oh, she's she's attached to High House Shadow. Yeah, and I think when we were in chapter one, I think I alluded to this when they were like, no one will ever... No one could ever suspect. And then next scene, <laughs> a paragraph adjunct, later, yeah, yeah, adjunct Lauren is like, "Oh, it's fe- the daughter." I feel like it's a missing girl. Like, <laughs> yeah. Is it an indication that they're dumb, or more an indication that they're cracked? Mm. And if you're going to talk about what's what's a cliche that gets thrown around a little too much in fantasy literature, mm-hmm. it's the idea of. They're just crazy, man. Mm-hmm. But I think there's going to be more to it than that. I yes. think why uh, Cotillion and Amanis, you know, why they're there and why they're behaving the way they're behaving mm-hmm. will get revealed to us later. Mm-hmm. But but based on what I have to go off of right now, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. Yeah. Brian Kemper says, does Peron now have the superpower to alter probability a la Longshot in the X-Men? Yes, I chose him over Domino, going old Xavier school. What do you think? I don't know. I'm really curious to see how it plays out for him. I kind of just think they gave him a really cool sword. I I kind of think that like... Sorry, every time you say that, I'm like... He's got a really cool sword, man. (laughs) I I sort of feel like he's had this sword all along and they've just sort of awakened its magical powers. I I don't know. We'll we'll find out. I, I mean, Peron's... Attitude definitely seems to be an asset. His mm-hmm. willingness to tell anybody to fuck themselves yeah. <laughs> seems to be his superpower. <laughs> that kind of is his superpower. You know what? You can go fuck yourself. That's what you can do. <laughs> and I got a sword to prove it. <laughs> so true. He also says, I forget what was Crocus's big hit in the mid 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it had a lot of hairspray. <laughs> God, what? I, I feel like there was a band named Crocus, right? I feel, Crocus, like, now I feel right? like there must have been a there band mu- named there was Crocus. There was a band named Crocus. There, had, there definitely was a band named Crocus. 
That's def- That's definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. If after this, I'm not going to do it now. If after this, I search up Crocus and it's not a hair metal band from the 80s, I will be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 98% certain that's real. He also says, is anyone else enjoying Erickson's naming? Not just the names he used, but the phonetics of the words. Um, yes. He says it reminds him of the fourth Doctor story, the Rebos operation, which had names like Graf Vindicke, Jethric. Yes, um, I I do. I really like his names and just his... Um, I mean, I've said this many times that uh, I need Steven Erickson to give me a nickname now. I mean, yeah, just his phonetics are are really, really lovely. As someone who has never written a book, I can tell you that the namings uh, is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Brian McClure says, I find it hard to care for any of the characters in The Bridge Burners, with the exception of Sorry and Whiskey Jack, and even them, I feel, are a little cliche. Are you having similar thoughts or feelings about the characters? Um, I feel like Whiskey Jack's a little on the cliche side. With the kind of grizzled veteran Yeah, the kind of like, yeah, yeah, but he's got a heart of gold, mm-hmm. you know, like, that's, a, I mean, that's a little, that's a little cliche. I guess it depends on how much that bothers you. For me, as long as maybe every character is not like that, yeah, I kind of like a mix of, I wouldn't even call them cliche. I would call them like, like archetypal characters. And for me, I like to have sort of a mix of unique and then the more archetypal characters because I, I find that comforting somehow, especially in this genre. I think you can't really write a story that doesn't have some relationship to tropes or some degree of it. Mm-hmm. They sort of ground you and they they kind of create the form, right? Mm-hmm. I, I relate a lot of things back to music. Um, so you know if you if you try to write a story that has no tropes of the genre in it, mm-hmm. it's gonna come across like that 12 tone atonal avant-garde music mm-hmm. that only like only like art students actually listen to and mm-hmm. don't really like it. <laughs> they're only they're only liking it because because you don't get it. You mm-hmm. know? So you know you need a little bit of of that sort of stuff to create the things by which you deviate that make you sort of unique. That's my take on it anyway. Mm-hmm. I do think Whiskey Jack is a little bit of a, a cliche character so far. I think Sor- Sorry is crazy unique to yeah. me. Like, yeah. I think she's super cool. Um, I like Quick Ben, and I think the other characters, we just haven't real. we haven't gotten a lot of exposure to them yet. Right. I agree. I, I love the characters in this book. Tattersale is my favorite, but but I really do. There there aren't any that I'm just like, oh, this one. And maybe it's because Erickson doesn't spend as much time with each character. Um, he bounces around a lot more. Um, Brian McClure also says Tattersale is the best character so far. Do you agree? I mean, obviously, we all agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, so far it's Tattersale and and Krupp. Does Hannah Matter Rake count? He's he I mean he that's badass too. Yeah, Anamander Rake is pretty badass. Um Matt Hedges says, so 
so you guys were taking a while for the podcast to come out, and then I blacked out, and before I knew it, I was in the middle of book four. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Matt Hedges. There's nothing we can do for you. It's not personal, man. <laughs> yes, it happens, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Someday, someday we'll do this for a living, and then we can... Yes, when we replace our, our income with uh, podcasting money, uh, <laughs> then, then we'll promise to have a podcast out on a regular basis. That's uh, not going to happen. No. Uh, Katrina <laughs> Newton says, on a scale of bogus to excellent, how excited are you for Bill and Ted face the music? Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Very excited. Plus, that poor other guy found no work after Bill and Ted's excellent <laughs> adventure. John Wick had no problem getting a job, but that poor other dude. <laughs> Won't be the same without George Carlin, though. Mm -hmm. Susan King says, I have a question in chapter four. Krupp comes up, or she means five. Uh, Krupp comes to a tree with a burlap sack hanging. Uh, is this perchance hairlock? I thought that the person hanging in the bag was another one of his sort of aspects of himself. Well, that's certainly what he thinks as he walks by, and he said he makes a joke that that's his humility yeah, that's the, hanging that's there. hanging that that tree. But yeah, now I'm not so convinced that he's right. Don't know. Could be an aspect of some other god or something. I don't know. Don't know who can interpret dreams. It's all bullshit anyway. <laughs> you never kept a dream journal by your bed when you were 14. No. Really? You didn't have one of those books. No. You're like, I dreamed about eggs, that means... I mean, I was an asshole. That Dan but Simmons I must really like me. I'm not that big of an asshole. What? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Am I an asshole? No, I'm just I think I me. might be. <laughs> We're all a little bit of assholes, so don't worry about it. I still love you. <laughs> Brian McClure says, who close to Peron is going to die? Don't I got know. a prediction, all right. but... Uh, but this episode has been very much about me having ideas and then you dashing those ideas and telling me how stupid I am. What? <laughs> That's not what it means, dummy. <laughs> Megan Erickson says, I have a lot of questions, mostly who is this now and where the hell are we now? But I can't remember them from last week when I was reading those chapters. Yes, I think join the club. That is with a lot of us. Yeah, chapter, I mean, unfortunately, the episodes are getting long, and we definitely can't take on three chapters at a time, but if you look at all the rest of the parts in the book, they're all three chapters at a time. Yes. So we're going to fall into this position where, like, every other episode is going to bridge the end of a section and the beginning of a new one, and this one, because it went, you know, from Pale to Darugistan was just really a pretty jarring jump, you know, in introducing a bunch of characters that you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hopefully we don't get any more that are that jarring. Yeah. Katrina Newton says, does anyone else read Krupp in the voice of Dobby the house elf? I I read Krupp in the voice of John Reese davies so... That's good. I read it in the voice of Ross Perot. <laughs> now, you can say that I'm a little clumsy with a bowl of soup, <laughs> but you can't call me a fool. 
<laughs> you, you know, fool, fool me, fool me, fool me once. <laughs> My God, you are seriously eight percent less sexy right now. I'm sorry. Shame on Krupp. <laughs> Since when has that ever stopped me? <laughs> that does not discourage me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Ian James Crone says, glad to hear no one was positive. I had a positive test in May and it's scary um, not knowing how it will go. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this month really kind of sucked, but all was well that ended well in our house at least. Absolutely. Yeah, we're all all healthy. Dababalina says, Tattersale, that he's quoting, Tattersale. I've been sitting on a pillow for these past two hours. And then everybody laughed. Can somebody please explain this joke to me? Yeah, I didn't get that one either. The best I could figure is that she was trying to make a self-deprecating fat joke. Like, that, that's, that's the best I could come up with. But I didn't, I didn't get it either. Dabba Molina says, the remake of Hawaii Five-0 is the best TV show ever made. Can I get an amen? Um, I haven't seen it. D- well, I, I mean, have you watched Gary Busey Pet Judge? <laughs> because I would I would ask that you consider all the candidates before I you. I mean, that's true. <laughs> because it's pretty awesome. All right, are you ready for predictions? Yes. I don't have a lot of them. This is going to be, it'll also be our shortest of our Malazan episodes so far. So, three predictions. Prediction the first, Darujistan going to blow up. Second prediction, Tattersail was somehow involved in the death of the emperor, Mm -hmm. the original emperor. And prediction the third, Peron's older sister dies, is the one who dies. So those are my three predictions. But now you're like, now I'm like, oh, it's going to be Tallow Krafar who dies because he's already dead. The coin fell for him this very night. I don't know, man. Why are you looking at me like that? I, I don't because I'm not even sure where to start with that one. <laughs> well, those are my predictions. Yay, predictions. <laughs> All right. Uh, you got anything else? I don't. Where can they find us? They can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. That is our website and where all of our episodes are hosted. You can find us on Twitter at the DND podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And if you want to come hang out with the cool kids and, and get involved in all of uh, the place where most of us are interacting, it is on the Facebook group page. So just go and search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group and you will find us. Uh, and we are on all the other social media sporadically here or there when we get to them uh, just by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. If you don't put in the word podcast, you will get very different results. Some people named Harry and Megan. I don't know. Yeah, I did just just so you know, I did change our feed on Apple podcast to say the Duke and Duchess book club mm. because podcasts seemed redundant. Well, <laughs> list I mean, now that you say it like podcast. that, I'm like, yeah. It's only taken three and a half years for me to figure that <laughs> out. Because <laughs> we're not doing this professionally, all right? This is, I mean, 
So it's a fun side project. All right. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time in uh, episode 121, where we will cover chapters six and seven. I am Mm -hmm. very excited to read. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night.